0: You know, the story of Noah is epic. In fact, we could describe it with words like these. It is heroic. It is magnanimous. It is colossal. It was monumental. It was legendary. We like stories like that, don't we? We're drawn to the heroes of those kinds of stories. And I think we're drawn to them because we there's a part of us that wishes we could be like them. I mean, we want to do something heroic with our lives. We want to do something that's significant in our lives. You know, uh, Hollywood has produced quite a few of these epic kinds of stories. Uh, you know, Star Wars and uh, Rocky, E.T., Braveheart. You probably can think of a lot of others. And as great as they may have been, I don't think any of those epic stories compare to the epic stories of the Bible. And I want us to explore four of these epic stories over the next few weeks And I hope that we'll, as we look into these stories, first of all, realize that God does something in these stories. He turns the ordinary into legendary. And I hope that after we explore these stories, that we'll use the same kinds of words like these to describe these stories. I think that we'll be drawn to the heroes of these stories. And as we look into their lives, I think that we'll see that the lessons they learned in life that there are some truths that we can gain from that for our lives in 2008. I uh, celebrated a birthday this week. I uh, turned 44, and that's not really a big deal. But I, do want to, I tell you that because leading up to the celebration of that birthday for the last couple of months, I've had this kind of goofy struggle going on in my mind. I've had this feeling like time is running out for me. You see, if I'm honest, I look at my life and I sometimes think, have I really accomplished anything that's significant? You know, if there's this part of me that wants to do something in life that's really significant and I have this feeling at times that I'm running out of time because I look at my life and think, I don't know that I've done anything significant and, and time is slipping away. And so I was depressed at times thinking, gosh, I'm celebrating another birthday. It's one more year before that I've lost. Well, you know, kind of coupled with that, if I'm really honest, I would also tell you that, you know, at times I sort of feel like I fail spiritually. Now, I don't mean to stand up and like confess something this morning, okay? And as a pastor, maybe I shouldn't even say that, but there are just days that I look at my life and I think, you know, I wish I was more like God. I wish that in certain situations I responded more like God does. I, I wish I walked more closely with Him and, and I wish that I could look at my life and say, maybe I could have done something more spiritually significant. Maybe you think about your job. And maybe you think, you know, Jeff, I've worked there for 10 years. And, you know, if I look at it, I'm not sure there's anything that I've accomplished there that anybody else would say is really significant. In fact, I don't know that I even like my job. Well, in fact, I'm not sure I even like the people I work with. In fact, You know, I kind of, if I'm honest, I sort of hate my job. I mean, I go and I put in my time, but there's no joy in it. There's no fulfillment. And I wish at times I did something else. Or maybe you look at life this week and you think the challenges are are just huge. And I wonder at times, why doesn't God just swoop in and fix everything today? I mean, why does it have to just go on and on? Why do I struggle day after day? Why can't God fix it right now? Maybe you look at the financial times that we're in and you think, you know, at times, Jeff, I just feel like a failure because I want to fix things for my family, but just nothing that I try seems to work. Everything seems to be against me. It almost seems at times like everyone is against me. Maybe you think about your life and there is some spiritual frustration for you this morning because you think about a time this week that you were in the midst of temptation and you made the wrong choice and you know, you think, man, there are all these voices in our culture that are always telling me to do the wrong thing. And I know what I ought to do, but I, I just so easily give in to all of those wrong voices that seem to scream so loudly, go ahead, do it. I don't know if you can identify with any of those struggles. And I'm not sure this morning that Noah asked any of those questions. Maybe he did. I don't know. But I do know this as I study his story. I discovered this week that I think Mo, Moses has the I'm sorry, Noah. I don't know how many more times I'll do that today because when I was practicing this morning, I did it over and over again. So if I say Moses, you just mentally substitute Noah for me, okay? And we'll be okay. I don't know if Noah asked those questions, but I, I do know this. Noah answered the question. He did. He has the answer for those questions that we ask. And I want to help you to see that this morning. Because I'll tell you what. As I studied his story this week, the answer to my struggle about significance just jumped off the page at me and screamed, Jeff, here's the answer. Quit worrying about significance and worry about what Noah did. And I want to show you what he worried about this morning. Now, before we dive into that, I want to share with you, I don't know if you've ever seen you know, that one of those things, everything I learned that I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. Well, somebody has written that for Noah, everything that I needed to know, I learned from Noah. So here's the list. Number one, don't miss the boat. Good advice. Number two, we are all in the same boat. Number three, plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. I like this one, number four. Stay fit. When you're 600 years old, someone may ask you to do something big. Don't listen to critics. Just do the job that needs to be done. Number six, build your future on higher ground. Number seven, for safety's sake, travel in pairs. Number eight, this one's good, speed isn't always an advantage. The snails were on board with the cheetahs. Number nine, when you're stressed, float a while. My wife likes that when she floats in the pool when she's stressed. Here's my favorite one, though. Remember... The ark wasn't built or the ark was built by amateurs, the Titanic by professionals. Think about that. Well, let's dive into the story. The story is found in Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, and again I want to encourage you, I hope you will bring your Bibles every week during this series because we're going to look at just parts of these stories. Some of them are really kind of long, and so we'll dive in and get as much of them as we can. But I want to encourage you to kind of mark in your Bible where we find these stories, and then go home and read the story over and over throughout the week and see if there aren't some other lessons that God teaches you through those stories. So Genesis chapter 5, Genesis is the very first book in the Bible, and we're going to start in the very last verse of Genesis 5. And it simply says this, After Noah was 500 years old. now talk about maybe feeling a lack of significance. This is the first mention we really have of Noah in the Bible. And nothing is said about the first 500 years of his life. Now there's a lot written that's going to come in the next 100 years for Noah, but he's lived 500 years, and I wonder if there were moments that he looked back at his life and thought, you know, I haven't really accomplished anything of significance. 500 years. Well, the story really kicks off in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Now, what in the world is, is it talking about here? Well, there really are three uh, kind of theories, three ideas about what the writer meant by these first couple of verses. The first is the idea that maybe the sons of God actually represent angels and that the daughters of men represent beautiful women on earth, and that in some form or fashion the angels somehow took on some human form and came to earth and had relationship with these women, which would not have pleased God. There's the second line of thinking that what is written about here is the sons of God refer to the sons of, of righteous men in the line of Seth, and the daughters of God refer to sinful women in the line of Cain, and that they were involved in some kind of relationship that again wasn't pleasing to God or the third thing that scholars think maybe meant here was that it the sons of God represent some rulers or kings and that they had become involved in relationships with women that didn't please God now I don't know which of those is true I'll just be really honest with you today I don't know which of those is true but I do know this the point I think that the writer is making here in recording this part of history is for us to understand the depth of the wickedness that was becoming pervasive in the world at this time. In fact, he expounds on that as he goes into verse 3. He says, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a 120 years. God is saying, I've put up with it about as long as I can. But God's timing is so different because in essence He says here, I'm going to give it another 120 years. I don't like the wickedness that's happening on earth. I'm not pleased with what's going on. But I'm going to give man another 120 years to turn things around, to turn away from sin, and then something's going to happen. Now talk about patience. You know, as parents, we give our kids like 30 seconds to turn things around. You know, Or when we look into the lives of other people, I'll give you till tomorrow to get that straightened out. God says 120 years. I'm not suggesting we give people 120 years. That would be their whole life. But Verse 4, the Nephilim were on earth in those days. Now, the Nephilim were believed to be some large people. In fact, a lot of people thought they were like giants. They were just really large. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were their heroes of old, men of renown. In other words, as God is saying the, the culture, other people were looking at these men who were involved in evil, these people who were involved in wickedness, and they were, they were applauding them. They, they were their heroes. They were famous. They were men of renown. But not in God's eyes. Verse 5, Then the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every... Did you catch that? Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. God looked around and He couldn't find any good. The Lord was grieved that He had made man on the earth and His heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Can you imagine the battle? that is going on in God's heart? Because God still loved His creation. Love is a part of who God is, and yet God's justice saw this wickedness and demanded that something happen. And so this wrestling match almost was going on in God's heart that grieved Him as He looked at man and said, my justice demands that I, there be punishment, but I, I love them and I have compassion. Well, verse 8, the story tone begins to change a bit. And we read, but Noah, and this is a huge transitional statement because God, we've seen the wickedness of the earth. We see how God feels about it and that something has to be done. But then there is this exception. There is this man named Noah who has found favor in the eyes of God. Verse 9 continues to describe Noah. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. Now, the language that's used there is not saying that Noah was perfect. That's not it. It's not that there was no sin in Noah's life. He did mess up along the way. In fact, if you read the whole story and you get to the time after the flood, you'll find that Noah goes out and disobeys one night, God's law one night, and gets drunk. And God's not pleased with that. So it's not that Noah was without sin, that he never did anything wrong. But the majority of his life, Noah was Seeking God and doing right things. And God looks at his life and says, There's a man who's pursuing me, who's pursuing righteousness, and who has a blameless life. And then here is the key principle of the story. This next phrase is the foundation of everything that Noah does. This next statement is what makes everything possible in Noah's life from here on out, I think. Do you catch what it says? Simply and he walked with God. The word that's used there for walked, that word substitutes other places in the story where the word lived is used. I think God is making a really clear distinction here. God is making a distinction between someone who is merely living life and someone who is walking with God. And the difference for Noah was that Noah wasn't merely living life. He was walking with God and there is a difference. You see, for Noah, God wasn't a passing fascination. For Noah, God wasn't something that he just occasionally thought about. Noah didn't just check in with God on Sundays and forget about Him the rest of the week. No, Noah walked with God every day. And hear this. Here's what this means to me. And I think what the Bible teaches. Noah spent his life recognizing the presence of God. When Noah went to the gate of the city to hang out with the other men of the city, Noah realized the presence of God was there. When Noah sat down for a meal with his family and looked around the table, he was reminded that God was at the table with them. When he went out to work in the fields or to do his labor, he thought about in those moments, God is with me. And he lived life in the presence of God. He walked with God regularly. Noah wasn't just merely living life. He wasn't just merely going through the motions of daily life. He spent his life walking with God. And I think there is a distinct difference. A huge difference. Now this was a startling realization for me. Because I thought about, as I thought about this principle in my life, I realized I don't think Noah was worried about pursuing significance. I don't think he was worried about trying to do something that was heroic. Because he was more concerned about just walking with God every day. And I came to the realization for me that sometimes I get that out of focus. That I worry more some days about what I've accomplished than whether or not I walked with God and spent the day recognizing His presence in my life. Well, the story continues then in verse 11. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. Now, Imagine you're Noah hearing this for the first time. Okay, because we just read right over that. Oh, he's going to put an end to all people. Noah had neighbors. He had friends. He lived on earth. And he hears God say, I'm going to put an end to all people. I'm thinking Noah goes, "Uh, God, I'm not sure I heard that right. You're saying all people? God continues. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Which again, I think Noah had to go, God, am I hearing You correctly? You're going to destroy the whole earth? And then God begins to give him some instructions. So Noah, he says, Make yourself an ark of cypress wood, or sometimes it's called gopher wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. Now, this is a huge boat that Noah says to build. Picture a football field. Now take one and a half of those. And that's how big this boat was. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That's the cargo space of 552 railroad cars. Now, when the Ringley Brothers Circus back in the 20s was traveling, they carried all of their stuff in cars. They carried uh, about 300 uh, horses, 26 elephants, 16 camels, and those all fit in 19 Railroad cars. Do you get the picture? This boat is immense. It is huge. And for Noah, can you imagine going from this to that boat? I wonder how could Noah tackle doing, making the undoable doable? How did he have the courage to go from a two by four or whatever he had to that boat. You know what I think? It was possible because he wasn't merely living life. Noah was walking with God. Listen to verse 22. It makes it so clear. The depth of Noah's obedience. It simply says, Noah did most things. Noah did some of the things. Noah did the things he wanted to do. No, no. It says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Do you realize that when God asked Noah to build the ark, he wasn't living beside the Gulf of Mexico or some other large body of water? Do you realize that he had never seen a flood? He had never seen a rainstorm. He had never heard thunder. Because at that time, the earth was watered by underground springs and a mist that hung over the earth. There hadn't been rain. So where did Noah get the courage to do something that had never been done before? Where did he get the fortitude to make the unbelievable believable? In fact, listen to what the New Testament says about what Noah did. It says in Hebrews 11, It was by faith that Noah built an ark to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God... And then underline this part. Who warned him about something that had never happened before. Where did Noah get the courage to do something that had never been seen before? I think it was because he wasn't merely living life. He was walking with God. Every day he was walking with God. Do you know how long it took Noah to build the ark? Somewhere between 100 and 120 years, depending on which how you put those numbers together. He was 500 when he started, and it says about 600 when he the flood came, but it also there's that reference to God giving 120 years before the judgment comes. So somewhere between 100 and 120 years. Now, can you imagine? I don't know about you, but after maybe 10 years of building this ark, I think I'd have been saying to God, uh, God, I'm not sure about this crazy idea. I think I'm going to send my resume out, look for some other jobs. You know, God, this is crazy. And I have to think, how did Noah become so empowered with such endurance? I'm speculating about this because the Bible doesn't actually say, but do you think Noah took a little criticism along the way? I mean, how happy do you think his neighbors were about him building this boat in his backyard? Do you think code enforcement was pleased? Do you think anybody ever came along and pat a no on the back for his genius idea? I doubt it. And yet it appears to me that he was empowered with endurance and he just kept going. Why? Well, I think it's because he wasn't merely living life. He was walking with God. And that gave him the fortitude to do it. Look at, the story moves on. In fact, the next few verses, God tells Noah about all the different kinds of animals that are to go onto the ark with him. And then let's pick the story back up in chapter seven, verse one. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. He's really offering Noah a plan of salvation here, a way to be saved from the impending flood. We'll see Noah takes him up on that. God gives some more instructions about the animals in verses 2 through 4, and then in 5 it says this, And Noah, again, did all. You catch that? He did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and all of the creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah. I don't know if you've ever thought, oh, Noah had to go up and go out all over the earth and round up all of those animals. No, it says very clearly, God brought all of those animals to Noah. And they entered the ark, and as God had commanded Noah, and after seven days the floodwaters came on the earth. Do you catch that? After seven days? Why did God send them on the ark? That hot It had to be a hot boat with all of those smelly animals who create smelly messes and then make them wait for seven days? I mean, why didn't God send them onto the ark, shut the door, and start the rain? Why seven days? Why doesn't God's timetable line up with our timetable? You know, I I want to marry somebody now. I need a new job today. I, I want to be healed yesterday. We want things to happen now. And yet as I look at Noah, why is it that he doesn't ever seem to say, God, why don't you make it rain? He doesn't seem that he ever invokes his timetable on God. Why? Because I don't think, I think Noah wasn't merely living life. Noah was walking with God. And there is a difference. Look at verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on, the day, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. The rains came. And Noah and his family and all of those animals spent all of that time in the boat. For days and days after it finally stopped raining, they continued to be in the boat. And time passed. A lot of time passed. And Finally, they... Dry ground came and they came out of the boat. You know what the first thing they did is? They worshipped God. Now as I think about this story, and I encourage you to go home and read the rest of it, and look for other ways that you see that it was demonstrated that Noah wasn't merely living life. He was walking with God. And I have to wonder, what would happen in my life if I began to not just merely live life, but I spent every day walking with God? What would happen in your life if tomorrow morning when you wake up, maybe even if you just tried it for one day, but tomorrow morning when you wake up, you consciously thought, I am going to live this day, not just going through the routine of life, but I am going to live this day walking with God. And and throughout that day, Everywhere that you found yourself, you reminded yourself and you recognized that the presence of God was with you. In the car, at work, at your son's t-ball game, at their dance class, sitting around the table with friends, waiting in a waiting room. But every step of that day, You didn't just go through the routine. You just didn't check off your to-do schedule and say, I've got all that stuff done. On to the next event. But you spent the day recognizing the presence of God and you walked consciously with Him. What would change? What would be different? What impact would that have on the people around us in our community? If in even just the 300 or so of us who call Crosspoint home were to do that. When I was in Bulgaria, it was a very spiritually refreshing time for me. And since I've been back, I've kind of thought about what was spiritually refreshing about it. Was it just that I got away from the routine and and was in a different place? And as I studied this week, I realized, you know what it was? I was much more conscious of the presence of God in my life while I was there. That's what made it spiritually refreshing. That's what renewed my soul. Because it wasn't that I got more rest. I got less rest. And it wasn't that I love the food because some of it I don't. And it wasn't that it was like a vacation because it wasn't. It was that I consciously recognized the presence of God. And I was reminded as I thought about that that you know what? I don't have to go to a Far away place to make that happen. That could happen every day in my life here if I would consciously decide I wasn't going to merely live life. I was going to walk with God. There's a song that uh, somebody pointed out to me this week that Matthew West sings. Some of the words go like this. History is in the making. Every choice that you are making, every step that you are taking, every chain that you are breaking, history is in the making. Every word that you are saying, every prayer that you are praying, every chain that you are breaking, history is in the making. And I wonder this week, as you make history, will you make that history by merely living life? Or will you make that history by walking with God? God, would You help us in the days to come, beginning in this very moment, not to just go through the routine of life, not to just merely live life, but God, would You, through Your Spirit, constantly remind us of Your presence in our life and would You help us to walk with You. And God, would You change us as we do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.